Thank you very much for joining us today at the February PPG Advocacy Panel. I'm your host and moderator, Don Hansen, and uh, I'm going to uh, quickly let everyone on the panel quickly introduce themselves, and then I will get us started on our topic. So I'm just going to pick people and let you go. Debbie. Hi, I'm Debbie Sheridan. I am a behavior consultant in West Hartford, Connecticut, and I work with primarily fearful and anxious dogs, some with bite histories. Linda. Hi, um, I'm the author of the uh, recent bestseller, Do No Harm Dog Training and Behavior Handbook, and also the founder and lead admin of the 70,000 member, oh my God, Do No Harm uh, public Facebook group. Um, I'm also a recent PPG uh, ambassador sponsor, yay. Yay. Excellent. Sam. Hi, I'm Sam Wink. I'm down in New Jersey. Uh, I run the inner dog and we deal predominantly with dogs who have moderate to severe behavior issues. Zazie. Hi, I'm Zazie Todd. I'm in Maple Ridge, BC, Canada, and I'm the author of WAG, The Science of Making Your Dog Happy and Purr, The Science of Making Your Cat Happy. Sue. Love that. Hey, I'm the newbie in the bunch here, and I'm Sue Kocher, and I'm with Hendo Dogs Training. I am Hendo Dogs Training. I work primarily with pet dogs, and I've been doing this for 20-some years. And last but far from least, Nikki. You're muted. <laughs> I, there you go. I, I always like roll my eyes and everybody else does that. I've got a little foster puppy in my house who tends to whine a bit, so I don't want to expose you to that. Uh, my name is Nikki Tudge and I'm with the Pet Professional Girl, but I am fundamentally, I am an animal advocate and I want to represent those that have no voice. That's my role. Excellent. So today's topic is anthropomorphism. Is it relevant? And this topic came to me last fall when I had a psychiatrist and his wife taking my puppy head start online class. And I forget how, exactly how it came up. And he said something about, oh, but I suppose we shouldn't anthropomorphize. And I said, well, actually, we probably should do that a little more than we do. And I uh, ended up writing an article about it. And I, I thought it would be a good topic to bring up here. I remember shortly after getting into this profession, so roughly a little over 27 years ago, was having a conversation with a vet who looked at me very sternly and said, Don, you know animals don't have emotions. You can't yeah. anthropomorphize. And I went away from that. I think the, the British word for it is gobsmacked because thinking, how ignorant is this man? I mean, have you never seen a dog wag its tail? Have you never seen a dog snarl in fear or anger? Um, it's just so obvious. And I thought we need to talk about it because people are still thinking this is something anthropomorphizing is something we shouldn't do. So that's kind of my introduction. And I'd like one of our panelists to step up and tell us what they think. Should we I get can tell you what I think. Okay. Should, we, should we have a definition first of what the word actually means? 
Well, we can. I, I've got m my definition here I got from uh, MiriamWebster.com. Anthropomorphism is an interpretation of what is not human or personal in terms of human or personal characteristics. Okay. Oh, some interesting noises there in the background. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm going to shoot over to Zavi. Zavi always has amazing words of wisdom. I think sometimes anthropomorphism can help and sometimes it can hurt, basically. And sometimes it can help because it can help us think our way into what it might feel like to be a dog or a cat in a particular circumstance. And I think that can be very helpful, um, even though we don't know exactly what the umbelt of that animal is or what that animal is experiencing and how they experience the world. Um, uh, but it can also hurt sometimes because we put human emotions onto animals that they're not feeling. And one example, I'm going to go with a cat example because I think we're mostly dog people here. So one example would be when a cat pees in a place where we don't want them to, maybe even on the guardian's bed. And people think the cat is being spiteful because they're anthropomorphizing. Like, why would you do something like that? Well, it must be because you hate the person. Um, instead of thinking, oh, maybe this cat actually has a UTI, for example. So I think it, it really depends on the circumstances and the way in which you're doing it. Exactly. I was laughing then, and I want to explain why I'm laughing, because I'm not laughing at you. God, I have too much respect for you to do that. But isn't it fascinating that a human being would think, oh, he peed on my bed out of spite, as if that's a behaviour that they would do if they felt being spiteful, that it would be... Yeah, <laughs> I didn't mean to... actually not quite concerning that someone would think about doing that. Because he didn't make me coffee this morning, yeah? I didn't mean to suggest that a person would actually do that, but it's their thought process, why would a cat do this? Right, <laughs> you know, he's thinking right. about it must be because they hate me, and it, 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 yeah. it's that way of, of putting themselves in that situation. But also, as to what Don said earlier, I mean, isn't it wonderful that we now know that animals do feel emotions and experience emotions? And this has been a huge change in science in our lifetimes. And I think it's just brilliant. And of course, it catches up with what many of us have felt from watching dogs and cats for a long time. And it, it's something that applies to people, too, because people when I was young, people used to think that babies didn't feel pain because they were too young to feel pain and so they wouldn't provide pain relief to them and it's just one of the ways in which luckily science has improved and I think it's great that we know that animals experience emotions even if we don't know exactly how they're experiencing them. Absolutely. Well I'd like to speak Linda. if I can um, uh, um, on, on that note uh, Zazie uh, similarly um, I'm not so much interested in whether anthropomorphizing is a correct scientific uh, position to take. Although that I, I think that in many ways it is the correct scientific position uh, because uh, in research we use mice and rats all the time and extrapolate those findings to human behavior. So why can't we switch it up and extrapolate human behavior to mm -hmm. other sentient beings who have somewhat similar emotions and similar needs to our own? So um, I'd like to look at the practical end of this and how it plays out in our lives with our dogs. Mm -hmm. That is the benefits and the drawbacks, as you mentioned, Zazie, of anthropomorphizing, because I think the uh, benefits are, 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 are real because anthropomorphizing enables us to empathize with our dogs. And when we can do that, people are more likely to treat them kindly. 
because we can identify with them in terms of our similarities in our emotional needs, which is why I use analogies a lot, very powerful uh, tool to uh, uh, help uh, pet parents and trainers understand um, not only human needs, but uh, dog needs. Um, so the uh, drawbacks though, is that anthropomorphizing uh, tends to uh, encourage people to put unrealistic expectations on our dogs. We expect higher complex thinking on a cognitive level, um, not understanding the brain anatomy on limitations of the dog brain. So, you know, these uh, unrealistic expectations are unfair. They're so unfair to our dogs. And by the way, Zazie, people don't generally put these expectations on cats. By the way, the cats get away with everything. It's just dogs. We have, we, we, uh, you know, see their behavior as bad. Um, whereas we make allowances for cats and for toddlers. And because we understand that they simply don't have the brain anatomy and the develop, developmental stage uh, level that uh, uh, adult humans have. I'm just going to jump in here because I'm, I'm actually looking at a quote from Yak Panskett who said in the middle of a, a debate on this very topic, and just to cut it short, that it allows us to critically look at our training and determine how the dog's balance, a scale of stress to pleasure and arousal impacts the dog's ability to perform a desired exercise, which I think has got to be the biggest benefit, right, for us. The fact, the fact that by... by projecting our emotions onto an animal and understanding that they also have those emotions that it enables us then to get an understanding of how they feel, whether they feel safe, whether they don't feel safe. And that for me goes back to this communication, doesn't it? Is that we've got to be able to communicate with the pets that we're working with so that we really do understand how they're feeling and what their emotional stability is like, which for me just says it all. I mean, isn't that the ethics of everything that we do, the empathy and the ethics? No, I think that's a good point, Nikki. And I think, you know, if we hit on the communications piece, I think that's one of the biggest problems the average person has is they don't understand that dogs and cats and people all express emotions, but they do it very, very differently. And if we're not uh, competent in understanding how they communicate those things, then we really can't interpret them. And I think that's part of the problem. Debbie, I saw you had your hand up. I'll let you go next. Thanks, Don. Yeah, I, I think that um, dogs are held to impossible standards today and we've gone way too far with the no anthro, you know, I can't say it, the word. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, guys. I just can't say that word because I, I don't like Debbie, it. Debbie, I'm exactly the same. Let's, you and me just call it anthra, okay? <laughs> Thank you. Anthra, you know, that terrible word. I, I don't like that word. I think people should try to um, understand how the dogs are feeling. And, you know, also dog, people say dogs are spiteful because they peed on my bed, but really they're upset and they're nervous and they have separation anxiety. And, and Linda, you talked about, you know, analogies, which I always use with my clients. Uh, you know, I, I went to someone's house um, last week and they told me how they tested the dog. They looked online and they were supposed to put their hand in the bowl. And I always say to that silly move 
if you, I was eating my hot fudge sundae and you reached your hand into my hot fudge sundae, I would bite you because I'm serious about my hot fudge sundaes. So I want people to really try to think about how they would feel and, and how the dog's feeling. And even though we have different behaviors, you know, if we could help them to understand what the behaviors mean, I think when they try to put themselves in their dog's place and understand that they are free thinking beings, they, they care more, you know, and they're not going to use those terrible other ways of doing things. Sue, you had your hand up. You're muted. Well, sorry. I learned what anthropomorphism was way back when I was an anthropology student a million years ago. Um, but I agree, it, it's important because it enables empathy. And it also um, allows us to address in a, in a sympathetic to the client way when they use terms like my dog is stubborn, my dog is doing this because he's jealous or dogs as with cats as he he's doing it out of spite. <laughs> okay. And then um, this got me thinking also about how we apply these terms to toddlers and little children. I don't think it's terribly justified there either. <laughs> because there's always rewards and reinforcements and contingencies involved. But anyway, um, it really helps to the helps the client to understand why there's no such thing as stubborn. The dog simply isn't trained. I think it's interesting too, and then I'll get to you, Sam, just saw your hand go up, that we tend to agree that animals have emotions when it's useful for our point of view. They're spiteful, they're jealous, they're vengeful. Um, but when it's useful from the animal's point of view, then it's, oh, no, no. Sam, what were you going to say? I was introduced to this concept um, probably differently than everybody else here. Uh, the first day of uh, explosive detection canine school, our instructors made a point to say to us that standing next to you is your partner. And your partner at this age is about um, the cognitive skill levels of about a, a two-year-old child. However, they're terrific problem solvers. You two need to learn to understand each other's emotions. You need to understand each other's capabilities and limitations. Though your partner is four-legged, you and he are inextricably bound together as partners. And so from that point on, they said to us, you know, if we see you doing anything that would not you would not do with a toddler, let alone with a canine, you're out of here. We expect you to treat your canine with that same level of kindness and compassion and that you work together. And you also have to realize that after two weeks in the program, your dog will always be smarter than you. But they were I like right. that. But they were right. And the other thing, too, is I had a mentor, Pat Whitaker, just a brilliant, brilliant man. But he used to say to us, no matter what the problem was when we were working with a dog, we'd always he'd always ask us, well, what was the truth as the dog sees it? And it, it brought home to us to remember their value system and how they see the world is different. And while we cannot necessarily comprehend what their olfactory senses and their hearing abilities and their sight and everything else is, we can, looking at it rationally, um, see comparisons to ourselves in order to understand it better. And that we need to use those, like everyone else has been saying, those analogies and that to help clients, therefore help their dogs. Everybody lives in a, in a better world, which is why with all my clients and on my Facebook page, I always say, 
It's not a relationship, it's a partnership because partnerships are different. Partnerships requires give and take on both sides. And it requires both sides to be able to understand each other in order to communicate to achieve whatever the goal is. Well, another, if I Go ahead, may, Linda. another good argument uh, for anthropomorphizing uh, is the research done by Dr. Gregory Burns, that famous functional MRI study where he, he demonstrated that dogs have approximately the same brain real estate um, for self, for impulse controls as do two to three-year-old children. So if this is true, we can indeed, you, you know, it's no longer an extrapolation, it's, it's neuroscience. So, um, and thus uh, the use of the word pet parent that um, I adopted after doing a lot of looking into like, what term could I use other than owner? And after you know studying attachment theory, and um, and the and the ways in which dogs are similar uh, to the 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 uh, parent toddler or parent child relationship, I, I I decided that pet parent really worked for me because they are part of their family, um, and and they're not like toss away. Lack of anthropomorphizing and this ownership idea leads people to think of dogs as property and toss away to uh, shelters. And, you know, my experiences at working in animal shelter have laid the foundation for all the work that I do today. Um, so uh, we, we really, uh, yeah, I mean, Darwin understood in, in 1871 that dogs, ex or, well, not that animals experience, or he believed that he didn't have the data to back it up. But he theorized, and he theorized pretty well, you know, as we have since learned that, that he knew a lot um, that we have now shown to be true, that they experience, animals experience pain and pleasure, happiness, sadness, and fear. So I think it's important that, you know, we look at, you know, the classical research and recent fMRI research in order to better get a handle on this important topic because I think it's a, a, a critically important topic for our field and to advance our arguments for force-free training. Got a couple of comments here coming from our listeners. Uh, I'd like to bring them to the panel. This is from uh, Roman Gottfried. Dogs have a similar family structure as humans. The dog has similar emotions like young children and dogs need attachment just like children. Dogs are with humans like no other house animals. If any other animal, dogs are the most human-like. Zazie, I'm gonna ask you. You, you. you are here talking about cats. Do you agree that dogs are exceptional in that round or not? Actually, I think the jury's out on that because although dogs have the longest evolutionary history with us as domesticated animals, cats do not have anywhere near as long. There is much more interesting research being done on cats now. And so I think we're going to find out even more about cats and their abilities and maybe other animals too. I don't ever like to underestimate any animal because time and time again at the moment, science is showing us that animals have a lot more abilities than we think they do, even when you're looking at bees, for example. So I wouldn't like to put any, any animal down in any way. But I would like to just go back to something that Linda said, if that's all right. Yes. Um, because Linda mentioned some research by Professor Gregory Burns and the fMRI research. And I'm really glad she brought it up because I think that's wonderful research. 
So I thought I would share one of my favorite studies that's come out of that lab is actually when dogs were in the fMRI machine and they were given the sense of their guardian and the same part of their brain lights up in response to the scent of their guardian as does in people when they're looking at photographs of their loved ones and close family members. And I think that's a really beautiful finding and it shows us something about the emotions that dogs have at the same time of course it doesn't tell us exactly what that dog is feeling we can't get inside the dog's brain and say what this exactly feels like for them but it's really nice to know that the same part of the brain is is being activated in response to the sense of of, of their guardian and um, I think there are quite a few scientists now who will say that dogs do love us and are happy to use that word to describe how dogs feel about their people. And I think that in itself is a huge advance. Not all scientists will agree to it, but I, I, I would agree to it myself. And I think that is also a huge advance in, in terms of thinking about how dogs feel about people. Well, and I think it, it depends, and I'm going to go out on a limb here for cats. It also depends on the individual animal. Um, I had a, a cat and I had a relationship which it was as close as any relationship I have had with any of my dogs. You know, I think, uh, and even with dogs, I've had some who I felt emotionally closer to than others, just like with people. And I really take what you're saying to heart. I think we have underestimated all animals, even things like bees for centuries because it reinforces our feeling that we are the biggest, best, and most powerful species on the planet, which we are learning is all a bunch of uh, yes. horse hockey. <laughs> well, well. Um, on that note, very interesting conversation because, um, yes, I, I agree that uh, um, that animals are much more complex and that there is more that we don't know about them than that we do. And we know one of the interesting things about dogs is that a large part of their brain real estate is devoted to scent, uh, scent reception. That's why thus the long muzzles with the tightly packed scent, scent receptors. However, speaking to Roman's, Roman's uh, 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 remark and question, I do feel that dogs are exceptional. I definitely feel that dogs are exceptional because we have bred dogs to um, connect with humans in ways that serve us. And Dr. Clive Wynn, for example, talked about the biddability of dogs, which unlike wolves makes them, this is a bred in trait, but it's found uh, in, in certain humans as well, where they're overly altruistic. And thus, uh, one of the reasons why dogs are such subjects of abuse because of the nature of their biddability, but that also makes them exceptional um, in, you know, in, my, in, in my interpretation um, of you know, the, the big picture and why humans connect with them so deeply. Any other comments on what Roman said before I introduce another comment here? Okay, this is from Scott Stauffer. And he says, yes, all animals have emotions and emotional needs similar to humans, but let's think of it the opposite way. Emotions are for evolution purposes. We are emotional too. Western culture and academia has conditioned us to be less emotional and more cognitive. Thoughts? 
Well, I'll jump in then, if that's Go. okay. I would actually say that culture really has persuaded us that emotions are feminine and this is a gendered thing and it's it's seen very much as a feminine thing and not having emotions and being more cognitive is unfortunately stereotyped as a much more masculine thing so I think it's actually quite hard to draw conclusions around that and the way we talk about emotions has definitely changed quite a lot over time but I, I actually want to go back to something that Nikki said earlier about Panksep and about how we can use those emotions to help us as well. Because when you think about when you're training a dog with reward-based methods and you think about the look on that dog's face and the expectation on the face of the dog when they know that they're going to get their, their treat for it. And we can all see that that dog is very happy and hopeful. And I think being able to see that is one of those things that gets people absolutely hooked on reward-based training methods and on doing more and more training with their dog and tricks and so on. So I think that is one way in which um, we can use anthropomorphism and emotions to help us to keep on doing things that, that our dog enjoys. I, you know, I think you're, you nailed it on the head, though. I think this is in many ways also a uh, a gender issue across many cultures. As a as a young lad watching Star Trek as a child in prime time, not the repeats, so I've dated myself there. Um, the character I most admired and most wanted to be like was Spock. And I thought, you know, I don't want to have these emotions. These emotions are bad. And it took me many, many years before I discovered that, you know, emotions are part of who, what we are and I'm a part of the joy of life. But I, I think culturally, yeah, there is, there is an effect there. And I think talking with my students, a female is much more ready to say her dog has emotions than a male will in most cases. Thoughts on that? Sam. Uh, all right, so I'll pose the question. If we did not anthropomorphize, then how would we describe the behaviors in non-human sentient beings? Good question. Doesn't, doesn't that get, get back to kind of the original premise of why we were denying animals' emotions to begin with, is that they are not sentient, therefore we can do with them whatever we want? But also it, it comes back to the question of, if we didn't use those words, those analogies, those comparisons, not only would we not have any other ways to describe it, we wouldn't have any other way to understand it. Right, and I, I you know, I very much uh, connect the hierarchy of dog needs, you know, uh, to you know Maslow's hierarchy of human needs, and I think that that connection is very salient to this conversation, especially when we look at, for example, nutrition. Humans are obsessed with our own, you know, reading labels and ingredients labels and what's the best diet and this diet and that diet. We're very concerned about and particular about what we eat. So, you know, we, we want to be equally concerned anthropomorphically uh, about what our dogs eat. We want to, you know, feed them human grade ingredients and we really want to, you know, look at whether we're feeding a biologically appropriate diet. Uh, that's of course nutritionally balanced. When we look at, at you know the water, I mean, you go to the grocery store. There's a whole aisle full of purified babbling brook spring water, you know, because we know that we shouldn't be drinking the water out of the tap. 
at least research has shown that there are pathogens and arsenic and a lot of other you know, things that we wouldn't want to drink for ourselves. So if we can identify with our dogs and start, you know, uh, uh, providing them with healthy water, it helps us to, you know, again, look at our own behavior and in exercise, we're obsessed with exercise. How much exercise should we get? What kind of, you know, what are we doing? Like aerobic, non-aerobic, weights, you know, so, so understanding the importance of exercise for our dogs is you know critical and and again like uh, sleep you you look at the the number of commercial mattress uh, manufacturers and we're so you know what kind of mattress should we have for our spinal comfort and you know should it be cool should it you know should it get you know have different levels so when, when we think about you know our dog's bed and those little donuts that we people give them to lie in and curl up like this where they can't even stretch out and they're not, you know, orthopedically sound. You know, if we can get people thinking more along the lines of what are our needs and therein, how does that relate to how we can better provide for our dogs? I think that it, you know, that it fits together pretty well. Debbie. Well, I think also, you know, when we're talking about, I'm going to try it, guys, anthropomorphizing. Um, you know, Zazzy, you mentioned how we look at the dog and the expectation of getting the treat, the reward is so rewarding for us. And then you see the dogs that are, you know, being jerked with the prong collars and the shock collars, and they look so sad. I mean, their eyes, their ears. So I think it really is important to hold on to that. And I, I liked what Sam said before, and I think we should all kind of take that where he said, what is the world as far as the dog sees it? I think that's just really important. You know, no matter how you feel about that word, anthra, how's it look to the dog? So I've got another comment here from Kate on Facebook. And she says, since human brains and nerve systems evolved from our animal ancestors, why would we think humans are so different and special from other animals? And we've kind of touched on this, but something Linda said about all of those different brands of water, I think one of the things that demonstrates is that humans through marketing and advertising can be conditioned just as easily to doing stuff that aren't always in their best interest as dogs can. Thanks for nodding yes, Sam. <laughs> You know, wow. it, it, it really, and you know, if you get on the nutrition thing, that could be a whole separate topic, but you know, we really on, whether we're talking dogs, cats, or any other species, we don't give them the credit they deserve. So how do we go about ending this myth and getting people to talk about it more realistically? Well, myths exist because, and will always exist, because of the fact that, you know, we make up stories to meet our own needs, to meet our own goals, agenda, desires, etc. Right. <clears throat> so it's not so much that you're ever going to end a myth because that's why they still exist, but we can change the thought processes by actually using anthropomorphism to our benefit to helping people understand their companion animals better, to making those analogies that everyone has talked about that we all use, because it is the simplest way 
to help um, anyone under, better understand their companion animal animals in general. And it doesn't matter the species, it doesn't matter the size, uh, you know, any of that. Uh, you know, you talk to large mammal trainers, right? Um, you talk to wolf trainers, you, it just doesn't matter. It, it, everybody sees it. So if everybody's already doing it, and we just kind of, if people bring it up, say, okay, well then do me a favor, take away all the, the human words, and now describe for me what it is you're seeing or not seeing or whatever. Um, I, I think that'll help to push things in a different direction. Other thoughts? Don't make me call on you. I think we can use examples that help people to understand how the dog is feeling in certain circumstances. And that would be especially helpful, or I find it especially helpful when you have a fearful dog or a reactive dog. And people often don't understand what it feels like for that dog and that some of the behaviors that they're seeing, which might be lunging and barking on leash or growling or something like that, are because the dog feels uncomfortable. They think it's the dog misbehaving in some way. So they're blaming the dog for those behaviors. And there's a whole load of examples you can use that will help people understand what it actually feels like um, because everyone has their own things that they're afraid of or that put them in difficult circumstances and I think the classic example that people use is spiders because a lot of people are afraid of spiders and 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 so this that you can help people to understand that that flooding isn't a good idea or exposing a dog to a circumstance in which they don't feel safe is not a good idea just by using that example of how would you feel if you're afraid of spiders and we suddenly dropped a spider on your on your nose or something like that. And of course, everybody understands that they would hate that. And that can help them to understand things from the dog's perspective a bit more. So I think that can is one of the circumstances in which anthropomorphism can help. But you do have to really get the person seeing things from the dog's perspective to, to get them to switch from seeing it as just where they are struggling with the dog. So they're, they're blaming the dog for those things. No, all good points. I, I use that example quite often with my um, with my students and clients because I have a um, totally irrational fear of flying stinging instincts or insects and have been known to uh, exit out of a moving vehicle um, in the in the case. And I think it's a good example, and I use it a lot because people often understand when your your animal's highly emotionally aroused and stressed that you know, trying to train them and be rational with them is is kind of pointless, kind of like me in a room full of wasps. I think there's an ethical component here as well, though, isn't there? I mean, oh, definitely. And, and, and sorry, and empathy. I mean, I, and I loved when Dr. Eduardo Fernandez said that to, to have ethics, you've got to have empathy. I just, I love that correlation. Um, you know, and some people just don't have a particularly strong level of empathy, not just towards animals, but towards anything, sadly. Well, and there, there's an interesting uh, discussion going on on Facebook now about, about science and is suggesting that, you know, ethics and thereby kind of implying empathy really aren't part of science, which um, I kind of find a really abysmal well, Dr. Simon, did anyone read the quote that by Dr. Simon Gabois? He posted on that same thread. I don't have it to hand, but he basically said that rather than arguing about the science of dog training, we should be arguing about ethics good, because good ethics is underpinned by good science. Yep. And that exactly. says it all, doesn't it? Is that yep. 
it's it's the ethics which you need empathy for <clears throat> that and the reality that our planet and our species are doomed if we don't start practicing more empathy yeah i mean collectively we do more damage to this planet than any other creature living on it mother nature will be happier yep so Roman has another comment here, and I kind of alluded to this one too. The problem with anthropomorphism is that the human lack of communication skills and understanding of pet needs. And I have to say, I think that's a big part of it. Um, how can we, how can we get people to better understand the communication systems of dogs and cats? I mean, they live in our homes. We certainly certainly should have a better understanding. This this for me, I think, is one of the things about our industry that for want of a better word most sort of infuriates me because I mean first of all I think we we sort of have an expectation that pet owners have this skill set but I see pet professionals that have what Annie Anderson and Angela Kostanka in their article referred to as behavior myopia whereas they just either through lack of skill or through lack of empathy or just through a lack of consideration are not able to actually look at the animal in front of them and sort of identify what the animal is communicating. And thus, we then make excuses about how we approach that animal in terms of how we train it and how we care for it. Um, so I think it's quite frightening that there are professionals earning a living in our industry that don't have those skills. And yet we, we expect pet owners to, which again, to your point, Don, is given how many, for how many years we've been sharing our lives with these animals, it's incredible. And some people do have a very strong understanding of the communication system without actually being able to express that's an appeasement signal, that's an affiliate signal. They might not know the nomenclature, but they, they have an intuition about their animals because they have empathy and they care and they're considerate. And then there are other people that, possibly can attach the right labels to the right behavior, but just don't care because of end gain. All they care about is the end gain and how they get there is not of any relevance to them. And so for me, I think it's one of the most important questions. How do we make that educational accessible to people that would want it if they knew about it? And then how do we hold people accountable that have that education, but just choose to dismiss it because of end gain? So I think there's sort of two, two aspects there. And I, I think too, Nikki, that gets back to, and I think it was Zazie that said this at the beginning, uh, introduced the concept of people having unrealistic expectations. Mm -hmm. Because I think a lot of people in our profession, especially those who are providing the pets to the family that's getting them, and I'm being all encompassing there, breeders, shelters, and rescues, often are the ones that set the person getting the pet up with unrealistic expectations because it makes the sale easier right i mean just from the type of animal that people choose to share their homes with right um on you know predicates a false expectation and an unrealistic expectation about that animal's hereditary background you know so how how, how do we combat the unrealistic expectations that are perpetuated because you know i mean one of them and this is one of my myths that I find equally destructive is this idea that um, dogs love everybody, you know? Um, yeah, not true. Linda, you looked like you were going to say something. 
Uh, well, I was just going to um, speak to something that Nikki brought up and that, yes, I think that the onus is on the trainers, the pet parents, um, to expect them to have the knowledge or the insight or, you know, the background or the ability for, you know, uh, understanding the research is, uh, that's unfair. But trainers making a living in an unregulated field, it is their responsibility to know their business if they're going to sell, be selling this to the general public. And the problem with training as, as I see it now is that it's compliance driven, that it is about, it's task oriented. And that's where the heart of the argument with the balanced trainers is, uh, you know, sitting today. Um, if you're interested in obedience, if you're interested in seeing dogs as human uh, entertainment or of tools or function, pardon me, or tools, right? If you know, a, a, as an extension of yourself, yeah. uh, rather than you know, what I now see that is really helpful is a dog centered approach, a dog which is a dog friendly approach. I mean, when it, why do people get dogs because they want relationship? you know, this whole, you know, mechanism. I don't know, Linda. I think there's a big assumption there because I know people that get dogs purely as a functional tool, not because of a relationship. And, and I would agree with that, Nikki. And I think sometimes the, the tool isn't uh, a, a protector or a, a service animal. It's a... Um, it's a sport or a hobby. Or an accessory to... Yeah. 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 Right. I think that's part of the problem. I mean, obviously it's part of the problem that we need to have teach humans that when you bring a dog into your home, it's not just what can this dog do for me, but what can you do for this dog to make this life wonderful for him or her, not it. Huh. Well, that'll, that'll be a discussion for, for next month's topic, which is how words matter, but, but no, thanks I mean, for bringing I, that up. I agree with everything Linda's saying. I mean, even, I mean, we all, some of us now sort of go out when we hear this, um, you must give your dog a command because we would rather say mm -hmm. cue. But even the word obedience has the same impact on me because I don't want an animal that is obediently compliant. I want an obedient a dog. My dogs are free to express their personalities and all the quirks that go with it because that's what I love about them. I love the fact that they're bloody rascals half the time and so <laughs> rolling my eyes, right? And as long as they're safe and they're not causing any damage, that's absolutely fine. But it's just different perspectives, isn't it? Um, I mean, I know police officers that have dogs that are functional tools, but those dogs are still a family member. And I know police officers that have dogs that are functional tools and the dogs never come into their house and they go straight into a kennel and it's a very formal relationship. So I don't think we can generalize about, well, it's police dogs or it's Schutzen dogs or it's search and rescue dogs. I think it's about the philosophy of the individual and their level of empathy and whether they want an actual relationship with this partner that they have or this family member. Lou, you had your hand up. In addition to all these functional things that people attach to their dogs and buy them for, like protection and so forth, let's also add childcare. I love having clients who say that they got the dog because they, their kids insisted on it and they think it's gonna teach their kids values and responsibility. <laughs> and that's the time for me to sit right down and say, wait, 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 wait a minute. This is a family project and you cannot and must not 
nag and expect your children to take care of all of that because they will resent the dog as well as you and then the dog ends up at a shelter so let's start over (laughs) and i I just want to make a joke about the word pet as well because rebecca and i laugh about this because several years ago i wanted i picked up my little dog to cuddle it and it was obviously did not want to be picked up and my husband said to me stop picking the dog up it doesn't like it and i said god he's my pet i will pet him (laughs) <laughs> and, we, and we sort of laugh about that now because they're pets and therefore we think we have a right to pet them whenever we deem it appropriate. And yet most small dogs hate, you can see from their body language, the minute somebody goes like that, they're like, oh God, I'm about to get hoisted into space again. They just don't like it. So I think even with some of us here, I mean, I know I catch myself doing it all the time. It's like, you're my pet, by God, you will be petted. Even if they don't want to be petted, we do sometimes force ourselves onto our animals and we have to be more cognizant of that. Well, it's, it's we have the emotional response too. If my pet doesn't like that, right. my pet doesn't like me. And, yeah. you know, uh, I, I, I've seen that with people. And sometimes, yeah. you know, I, I always hate when this business gets into couples counseling because that's really <laughs> out of my my ballpark. But sometimes where that, that happens and, um, you know, yeah. But think about that, Nick, too, what you just said, right? So because we want to, but then if we're doing something or nothing and our pet comes over and starts to paw at us, right, we get irritated by it. Right, yeah. Without realizing we're being a hypocrite about that. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely, absolutely, yeah. So on on that note, yes, you know, this idea of consent, um, thank goodness, has has become recently popularized in the force-free community. And I mean, I just love it. you know, that, that, you know, you, what you were just talking about, Nikki. So, you know, we're now talking about giving dogs choices. But we are now being branded as completely extreme because of that, because we are, we are now moving the bar even further, whereas we want to be able to ask questions of our dogs and accept mm-hmm. the answer they provide for us, right? I mean, for and me, every, every interaction no, with my pet is a consent test. Do you, are you okay with that? Are you okay with that? Are you okay with that? Um, you know, I think one other thing with with consent, and I'm glad to see it going that way, but we also have to recognize that's only become an issue in the human world in the past 10, 12 years where um, it's become a bigger deal. So, I mean, it has accelerated right. a little quicker, yeah. but I, I'm glad to see that. I wish yeah. we could accelerate on some of these other things uh, towards animals the way that has too. But, you know, well, some well, of those people who do things to animals we don't like, you know, they don't see consent as being necessary and they probably feel the same way about other people. Well, I watched a video last week of a a, a fairly well-known shot collar trainer and he was out in a pasture with about six mallies and holding a shot collar. And he said, I just want to talk about shot training. And he said, the reason that three of my dogs have got shot collars on is because I must be able to control them all the time. And I thought that's it in a nutshell, isn't it? And I just turned the video off. That is it. It's all about that absolute control. And I don't think any animal deserves to be controlled all the time, if not the majority of the time. Isn't there a mental health diagnosis for that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Linda, please go on about your consent testing because I interrupted you. Please finish your thought on that. Well, um, Don, I think it's some sort of narcissism um, in terms of, you know, the control factor and certainly like ego mm-hmm. um on yeah it's oh okay i won't say it 
some of the some of the research that I've done on animal cruelty, um, which was has been documented by Fabra, I have a couple of his books and some of his papers, is this absolute, it's all about ultimately control. And if the handler feels they're losing any of that control, they will exert that control by the escalation of physical, physical cruel, cruel punishment. And it's sort of that that doom loop, so to speak, isn't it? I mean, and we know that punishment can be reinforcing to the punisher. Heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's difficult to read, isn't it? Well, since there I mean, are a lot of elements of, of mental health involved when, you know, we start looking at like, why is this occurring and, you know, who is doing this and for what, what are their motivations? And of course, you know, the financial agendas, um, you know, I'm always looking at, you know, who's making money off of what connections they have and, you know, how is that, you know, driving some of this conversation um, because, you know, following the money always, you know, uh, leads to some interesting information. But yeah, the, uh, the consent idea, um, and I actually, I think force-free training is, you know, more effective. Um, it's uh, when, when we ask, you know, for approach with consent for approach, uh, for example, what you were talking about, Nikki, about petting, um, you know, and again, back to the analogies, humans don't just rush up and, and hug strangers. Like, why do we give ourselves a license to do this with dogs? Um, when we think about, you know, consent in, husband, uh, in husbandry now, um, how much easier it is when we look at progressive zoos and mm. what they're doing, right. large and potentially right. dangerous animals, you know, we can really use these things in our field to drive, you know, to drive the message because the science is on our side. You know, it, 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 it is in that there are mountains of research mm-hmm. historically, both the classical and recent research showing that pain um, causes aggression. You know, it, it will, you know, either cause shutdown or submission or helplessness or aggression. So, I mean, the whole argument is just, <laughs> it's nonsense. I know, and, and, and unfortunately, and we know, we know that we live in an era where science is not believed, right? I mean, we've just gone through an epidemic. What? With science? so many deniers. <laughs> um, I mean, if we can't believe the science, I mean, we, ha- I don't know if you guys remember, but two and a half years ago, thanks to Nathan Watson, who's on our PPG British Isle Steering Committee, his sister works at Harvard, where they were doing some of the very beginnings of the COVID research. And through her, we put together a panel of Harvard and Yale scientists that were working on the COVID vaccination. Don't know if you guys remember that. It was a great webinar we did with them talking about how dog trainers can prepare for classes. It was at the very beginning when no one was really sure where it was going. And I remember coming off that first meeting with them, you know, seven of them on a meeting. And you just think, my God, how impressive. And you think, but there are people that watch and listen and just go, absolutely nonsense. I can't possibly believe that. So if people don't believe the scientists that are working at the top levels in research, why would they believe some of the things that we're telling them about the research into dogs? There is a culture of disbelief out there and pessimism. Sazzy. Can I go back to what Linda was saying, which is absolutely right about consent. 
and bring cats into the discussion on consent as well mm -hmm. because everyone thinks of cats as being able to do what they want all of the time but one of the cases when cats don't have that opportunity is when they're being petted just like with dogs people expect they can pet a cat and yet there is research now that shows that if you give cats choice and control in when they're being petted it's much nicer for the cat they enjoy it a lot more they will stick around to be petted for a lot longer if you know if they have the chance to go and also I, I think this is similar to people with dogs as well some of the people who say that they are good with cats are the ones who are less likely to give cats a choice on being petted and that's from a piece of research done in the UK and I think we see that with some dogs as well some of the people I'm not talking about dog trainers although maybe it applies to trainers too but some of those people who think they are good with dogs are actually not the ones who respect the dog's body language when they're interacting with them um, and so Unfortunately, this does show that people really do have to actually have the knowledge rather than believe that they have the knowledge. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it shows that importance of choice and control. And also it ties in with what you were just saying, Nikki, about people not always listening to things. We really need people to actually yeah. have that information and act on it. Well, as, as Dr. Susan Freeman says, choice is a, is a positive reinforcer, right? When animals get choice yeah. and, they get, and they do a behavior and they get feedback from the environment, that's re highly reinforcing for them. So... But even for some of the trainers in our community that say they're positive reinforcement trainers, there are still trainers that really believe they're positive reinforcement trainers, yet they expect compliance all of the time with the animal. So really, just by not giving your animal choice and by not doing preference and consent testings, you, you do need that, that. That's a level of aversive control, isn't it? When you are not allowing them to, to be empowered and to explore their environments, et cetera. Yeah, it's brilliant. And Zazie, those people you talk about that, I love every dog and every dog loves me yeah. are the ones that I warn my puppy students about right. when they are out socializing because yeah, those are the people. <laughs> well, no, they will. They'll, they'll barge right in and yeah, lean right. over the puppy and pick it up. Yeah. And Linda, I, I'm glad asking, in yeah. your community, you don't have uh, human huggers that will just come up and hug you. But, um, <laughs> you know, there are parts of the world where that happens. And I've been subject to that that more than once and yeah. I do not like it but well, you know yeah, it happens with honest, people too I mean we had this conversation yesterday Rebecca and I were talking yesterday the day before about you know it wasn't that long ago when you were told commanded almost that you must kiss your grandparents when you get to their house <laughs> and all the kids would be like eh. nobody wanted to kiss their grandparents especially granddad who gave you a big old wet licky on the cheek I mean yeah. no <laughs> Kids, you were never told that it's up to you if you're not comfortable, you know, don't feel you have to do that. And it wasn't that long ago, right? When, I mean, even now, I'm sure there are still some kids that are told you must kiss your aunt, you must kiss your uncle. It's a sign of respect. And so if we don't even have the ability to consent test to get with our own bodies. Why would we expect people to understand that about their pet dogs or cats? Well, I think we're, go ahead, who started? Yeah, the, the, the anti-science uh, uh, phenomena, I don't know what to call it. It's like, baffling to me. Um, it's, it's actually beyond belief. Um, you know, I understand some of the flaws with research and some of the agendas that drive research that, are, you know, can be questioned on uh, critically analyzing research and really looking at methodology on you know, funding and, and uh, you know, uh, conflict of interest. But all in all, I mean, uh, the scientific method 
is the only uh, the only thing that we have to help us determine truth from fakery. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I think that it, it's, uh, you know, uh, uh, it behooves us to, to try to be a bridge, to be a catalyst mm -hmm. to pet parents and to trainers, of course, to trainers, you know, between the worlds of research mm -hmm. and what they're already doing. Um, this idea you were talking about control. Yeah, in, in psychology, there's a whole field of, on research on locus of control and how important that empowerment is of giving choice. That, um, you know, no choice, not giving choice. And I mean, our, our dogs are our virtual captives. So we control all of their resources. And if we're not, you know, in, in certain types of training where they're given not only no choice, but forced into compliance to adhere to, uh, Human, human desires as absurd as some of those desires may be, such as sitting on a hydrant, or, you know, some are, you know, certainly cruel, um, but, you know, no choice is helplessness. So you will, again, we know how important choice is in our lives. So I, you know, really want to, you know, uh, encourage people to use the research to look at the neuroscience now, which really, I mean, it's neuroscience is not debatable, is it? Um, so, and, and to use those analogies to, to help bring people together and to, uh, you know, create an atmosphere where a pet is less thought of as, as property um, in terms of ownership and more so as part of the family. And for those people that do have dogs, like you mentioned, Nikki, who, you know, have a, a purpose-driven um, agenda for the dog. Um, I don't, I don't know. I think that they can do both, that we can have dogs involved in sports and that we can also, as you said, you know, treat, treat them kindly and, and, and make it, you know, uh, in, incumbent upon the, the pet parent to understand that it's their responsibility taking the sentient creature into their homes to treat this animal kindly, first and foremost, above any need for compliance to our entertainment needs. Linda, in response to your comment about the science, I just posted in our chat group an article that I finished reading yesterday in Lifehacker which is titled Why Stupidity is More Dangerous Than Evil. And it's quite interesting. It talks about the fact that we can combat evil, but really we don't have any tools to combat stupidity. And I think, you know, in general, in society, I think we see a lot of that, don't we? We just, and that's where that famous saying comes. You can't, you can't argue with stupid. I mean, what, what, what's your starting point? Yeah. It's well, uh, we need a historian on the panel because I think if you look through all history, you'll go and see these tensions between science and yeah. other things that that get in the way and we're certainly in one of those periods but time is up so i want to wrap us up on a positive note i think we've had a really good discussion here i think we can all acknowledge that um we've made a lot of progress you know if we would have had this discussion 30 years ago uh, i suspect we might not have been willing to talk about it because uh, we would have been intimidated about talking uh, about it. And so we are making some progress. And on the consent thing, I think we've made huge progress. 
uh, with animals. There's still a long way to go, but people are becoming much more aware of that. So on that note, we hope you listeners will tune in next month when we will be talking about why words matter. And I think uh, we've got some some words from this presentation that are going to factor in there. And uh, to my panelists, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. And for those of you listening, thanks for doing so. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Tom. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. If you're gonna teach me, teach me force free People can be good and kind and that's a great philosophy I can flourish, I